and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the 17th century African monarch Ndinga of Ndongo. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. It's quite a content warning heavy episode. I'm sorry. Cool. I see. We're going to be talking about slavery. We're going to be talking about war. We're going to be talking about the Portuguese colonization in Africa, including forced conversions to Christianity. We're going to be talking about violence and murder, including within families and against children, forced sterilization and a possible suicide. We're also going to be discussing historical misogyny and historical and modern queerphobia and ritual cannibalism and human sacrifice. Before we start, I'd also like to apologize for any incorrect pronunciation of non-English words and names during this episode. I'm sure I'm going to get something wrong, and I'm sorry. This episode is going to be structured a little bit differently to our normal biographical episodes, where we just kind of go through someone's life and talk about the queer points as they come up. So I'm going to start with a biography of Njinga, not going into queer stuff, and then once that's done, I'm going to go back and we're going to talk about queer stuff. So just endure a non-queer biography of the first half of this episode and have yes. fun with that. I'm also going to be using they, them pronouns for Njinga in this episode. That's more because I'm unsure of what pronouns might be appropriate and I'd like to hear your input than because I'm like solidly set that they, them best represents their identity. Okay. So, you know, offer your opinions when we finally get to the queer part. Cool. I look forward to doing that in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Same. Yeah. So I know in the past we've revealed our complete lack of knowledge of American geography. Mm-hmm. Oh, How's gosh. your African geography? <laughs> I think I'm better at Africa than I am at US states. Okay, good. Let's test. Where's Angola? It's like two thirds of the way down in the middle somewhere, isn't it? Pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I told you I'm better at this. Yeah. So it's about two thirds of the way down on the west coast of Africa. Okay. okay. Now where's Wisconsin? <laughs> <laughs> That's no the truth. There is not an American state called Wisconsin. <laughs> I'm impressed that you kind of knew where Angola was, because I had no idea when I started this episode, and that's where we are today. Cool. So, although we are in what is now Angola, there was no such country as Angola when Njinga was born. Angola is the name introduced by the Portuguese when they colonized the area, and it's based off the local word Angola, which means ruler. Okay. So Ndinga was born in 1582 in a country called Ndongo, probably in the capital of Kabasa. And just so you're aware of what I'm talking about, the people of Ndongo are called the Mbundu people. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just to backtrack for one second. So are you suggesting that Angola is essentially a kingdom called kingdom? More like a kingdom called king, but like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Even worse. Okay. Yeah. So Ndinga's grandfather, when they were born, was the Angola of Ndongo. Okay. It's just the word for monarch or ruler. How did that happen? I think the Portuguese just kind of stuffed up. I don't know. But, like, this happens where, you know, people call a lake, lake in the local language. Mm. Like, that makes sense. But no one's going to be like, so what's the area called? And they're going to be like, Angola. It's also the case that the Portuguese, in the decades and even centuries after Njinga's death, referred to the people of Angola as Jingas, based off of their name. So oh. the Portuguese, I don't know what they're All right, doing. sure. <laughs> All right. All right. I feel like we they were so. like, yeah. we know two words in this language, so let's name the country. Yeah. After We've met Angola and Dinga. Which one of these words is the country and which is the population? <laughs> what? Dinga's father, Mbandea Angola, was the son of Cassenda, who was the Angola when Dinga was born. As was normal for Mbundu men, Mbandea Angola had many wives and concubines. 
and Njinga's mother was his chief concubine, so that's the step below chief wife. Njinga growing up has a pretty high up status in the Ndongo court. Okay. Eight years before Njinga's birth, the Portuguese had set up a colony on the island of Luanda, which is off the coast of Ndongo. And from there, they launched an invasion of Ndongo. So by the time Njinga was born, they'd conquered about half the country. When Njinga was about one year old, their family had to flee the capital. And so Njinga grew up in exile. The main motivation for the Portuguese invasion of Ndongo was the slave trade. So slavery had always been a part of the economy of Ndongo, but it had never been a part of the economy on the scale that the Portuguese yeah. introduced it. So by the early 1600s, somewhere between about 10 and 13,000 Mbundu people were being transported to Brazil every year as slaves. Just to give me an idea of scale, what's the population of Ndongo? Um, the number that I read when I was trying to figure this out was 100,000. But if you're what? sending <laughs> ten to 13,000 a year to Brazil... Yeah, you have no more Ndongo eventually. Yeah. I'm not sure of the exact number, and it is the case that this slavery really did, like, like leave the country empty. Like it decimated. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. The population of Ndongo, let's say, in the low hundreds of thousands. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is a significant portion of the population that is being enslaved and leaving. That is so terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it is terrifying. It is terrifying. So that's the background to Njinga's early life. As an adult, Njinga would claim that out of all of their father's children, by their father's many various wives, they were the favourite and talk about how they were allowed to sit in on his political councils and how they outperformed their siblings in, you know, physical and mental skills and they were just very impressive. But naturally you would say this. Yeah, like this information comes from biographers who knew Njinga later in life and comes from what Njinga themselves has told these biographers. So I take it with a grain of salt. Okay. How many siblings do they have? I don't know the exact number because... But like a bunch. Yeah, like a bunch. Like, you know... Tens. Tens, yeah. Probably tens of siblings. They have three full siblings. Okay. Who we will meet and talk about in this episode. Cool. But probably just like a bunch of half-siblings. All right. Yeah. So that information comes from later in Njinga's life. Our first contemporary sources about Njinga's life tell us that by about 19 or 20, they were leading their own group of Mbundu rebels against the Portuguese, cutting off Portuguese communications, undertaking guerrilla activities, and just generally making Portuguese life difficult. By 1615, when they were in their early 30s, they were described by the Portuguese as, quote, that cunning queen, our capital enemy, who never tires of looking for ways to ruin us. It's almost like you invaded that country, just saying. Maybe you did, Portugal. Maybe you shouldn't have done that. When the Portuguese governor turned up to first set up that colony on Luanda, he left Portugal already with the title of, like, governor and captain general of conquered Angola or something. I was like, you haven't even got there yet. So they'd already named it badly before they arrived. (laughs) They had kind of, like, been there. They didn't have a colony, but they'd, like, sent some missionaries and kind of, like, been in the area. Okay. So it wasn't like this was the first time they landed in a country they'd never seen before and they're like, we own this now. They'd been kind of like seeing it for a long time being like, we're going to own this place. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's bad. In 1617, Njinga's father, who was now the Angola, died. Angolas were generally elected from amongst eligible people in the royal family, so would have been elected from amongst Njinga's father's sons. But Njinga's brother, full brother, the one we actually know about, Njinga's brother Ngola Mbande proclaimed himself king before any elections had a chance to take place. 
Oh, okay. And killed off a whole lot of his rivals, oh, obviously, including his, his own siblings. siblings. Wow. Well, okay. Yeah, which was not that unusual in yeah. this context. I mean, I've never heard of a monarchy in which that kind of thing doesn't happen. Yeah, in which yeah. killing your siblings isn't like, yeah, this happens Just sometimes. Just kind of how it goes sometimes. <laughs> Maybe monarchy kind of sets you up for that. Yeah, I guess it does. So Golan Bande has just killed a bunch of his siblings. Okay. And he's the king now. So of their four siblings... How many are left? Who's I'm left? not sure. N- okay. Njinga... No one else is really relevant. Then. No one else is really okay. relevant. So Njinga is obviously still alive. Yeah. This would be a very short Good. episode. <laughs> and Njinga has two sisters called Kambu and Funji. Okay. And they are alive and we will see them elsewhere in the episode. Okay. okay. I'm sure that there are other siblings who aren't dead. I don't think he killed all of them. But those are the only three that okay. I know of by name. So being still alive and being... A rebel leader in their own right, and Jinga yeah. was obviously a threat to Ngola and Bande. Yeah. So wait, so they were assigned female at birth. Yes. Right? Sorry, oh, I just did not mention that. No, you start. did not really. <laughs> uh, their sisters are their sisters also a threat, or like are they um, performing a role that isn't common for someone assigned female at birth, or like what's going on here? So Njinga is performing a role that's not common for someone assigned female at birth. There uh-huh. are like female military leaders, okay. in the area. That okay. You know, have existed, but it's not the norm. Okay. So, like, it happens. It's not, like, completely unheard of, but, like, yeah. it's not a default thing. Yeah. But at this point, Kambu and Funji and Njinga are all treated in the same way by Ngolan Bande. Okay. Which is that they're all forcibly sterilized. Oh. oh. And Njinga had recently given birth to a son oh. by one of their concubines. So, Njinga has many concubines. We'll talk about them later. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, cool. Yeah. I don't have more information about that at the moment, really, about the people. Just, like, to put this out of my mind, will the son survive? No, the son is also killed. Oh, that's terrible. That's all we know about the son. Okay. As, like, a baby? As a baby, yeah. So the son is recently born and immediately killed by Angolan Bunny. Oh, that's some rough content. Okay. Yeah. In 1621, the Portuguese installed a new governor called João Correa de Souza. I looked up how to say João, or however you say it, on YouTube, and there were a bunch of like Portuguese people making like comedy videos about how foreigners just can't oh, say this no. name. I was like, God <laughs> damn <right>. it! <laughs> so João Correa de Souza became the governor, and there being a new governor, Ngola Mbante thought that the Mbundu people might have a chance to negotiate a peace. Okay. So he sent Njinga to Luanda to try and manage these negotiations. The scholar Joseph Miller, who was writing in the 1970s about Njinga, notes that this. Seems totally at odds with how Ngolan Bande had just treated Njinga a few years yeah. before. I was about to ask that. And I was also about to say, so is what you're saying that Njinga was seen as a threat not because they were a rebel leader or a military leader, but because they could potentially have sons? It's hard to say. Like, the fact that Ngolan Bande did kill their son suggests that it was partly that they could start their own line yeah. to rival Ngolan Bande's line. But- and also the fact that Njinga has been sterilised and now seems not to be yeah, a not problem. killed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point that I didn't actually consider. But yeah, that is true. Joseph Miller notes that there's no contemporary sources about Njinga going to Luanda as an ambassador and just suggests that this episode that we're about to talk about was just made up wholesale by Njinga later in life. Oh. Sure what? I didn't see any contemporary sources about it, but I'm always wary when historians are like, this just never happened. This is just made up when we do have people who were alive at the time who have talked about it, 
You know, there were yeah. people alive who could have been like, what are you talking about in Jenga? You never did that at the time when the history was being written down. I guess that depends a lot on, like, what the circumstances are when they tell this story and, like, who is specifically yeah. alive. Like, we definitely got into a bunch of stuff in the Chevalier Demo episode where they just made up stuff wholesale. Yeah. Whilst, like, a bunch of the involved people were still alive. Mm. And also, I mean, to some extent, I don't know what the, like, situation is here. When the king tells you a story about what they did in their youth, right, you're not like, no, you didn't. Yeah. No, you didn't, your majesty. Shut up. <laughs> That's fake. <laughs> you're lying. Who do they tell this to later in life? The two biographies of Njinga we have who were written by people who knew them mm. were by people who knew them when they were in, like, their 60s or 70s, mm-hmm. and these two people who wrote these biographies were both missionaries from Europe. Mm-hmm. And so they're the ones that first tell us this story. But, for example, this story talks about Njinga travelling to Luanda with, like, a big entourage of soldiers and a very kind of elaborate. Yeah. Like, it's a yeah. big deal. Yeah. But but still, like, if they're telling a story to a missionary, like, is this biography then published in their community for their community to read? Or are these missionaries like, cool, I now have this book that I'll show that, yeah, these missionaries yeah. are writing for a European audience. Yeah. In which case, Njinga can say whatever they want, essentially. That is true. That is true, yeah. Maybe it didn't happen. Yeah. Maybe it did. I don't know. Go on. <laughs> Anytime you want to be like, wait on, Alice, how do you know that? Feel free to, like, ask. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's talk about this thing that maybe didn't happen now. Yeah, yeah. So Njinga travelled to Luanda in very dramatic style, maybe. <laughs> was greeted by the Portuguese, maybe, in, you know, equally dramatic style with a military escort coming out to meet them and escort them into the capital and so forth. But once they arrived, de Souza treated them as he treated all his African visitors. So he sat up on his nice big velvet chair. Njinga was expected to sit on the ground in front of I've him. I've seen a cartoon of this. Yeah. 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 Njinga refused, and instead they ordered one of their slaves to go down on all fours and sat on the slave's back. Mixed feelings. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, like, from the perspective of, like... Yeah, like, screw you, Portuguese governor, but also, that's a human person. Yeah. 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 From the perspective of people in that culture, like Mbundu people, Mm. this looks like a, you know, really impressive show of strength and, like, Mm. no, I'm an equal with the Portuguese and so forth, but obviously... Which is good and important, but... (laughs) <laughs> that's Slavery. a human person. That's a slave <laughs> that you're sitting on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How long were they sat there for? I don't know how long the negotiations took, but it is noted that when Jinga stood up and finished the negotiations and kind of went to leave the room, Correa de Souza was like, uh, are you going to like get that slave to stand up? And Jinga was like, no, nah, I've got a bunch of slaves. Like, it doesn't matter. Wait, what? They just like left them there? Yeah. What do you mean? I don't know. And then what happened to them? I Presumably they got and up and the... walked home eventually. Or did the Portuguese be like, well, I guess we'll sell this person now. What, I don't what? know. I have no more information about what happened to What do you mean get this slave? The slave can get up I mean, I mean, the slave wasn't going to get up until she until was ordered told. to. Yeah. I mean, possibly also the slave has been kneeling there for like two hours, right? Hmm. Like, what? they may take some time to get up. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, okay, anyway. What happened to the negotiations? Um, so the negotiations, from Jinga's perspective, were very successful. So they successfully negotiated for Ndongo to remain independent. They refused to pay an annual tribute of slaves to the Portuguese, which the Portuguese were demanding. And they secured Portuguese help in fighting off hostile war bands or raiding parties, known as Imbangalas, which were also threatening Ndongo. So what did Njinga have to offer the Portuguese in return? (laughs) So the Portuguese were allowed to keep some military forts 
around Nongo. Okay. Do what with them? Um, just be, just be there. Control slave be. trade. Okay, is a lot of it. Right, home to Portugal and say we totally own Africa now. I yeah. guess. There's several instances throughout their life when Jinga meets with the Portuguese and they like make a deal that seems to be pretty like equal on both sides or Jinga's even like, no, I refuse to become your vassal. Like I am queen of Ndongo and the Portuguese right home be like, Jinga has sworn fealty to us and we now own this country. Uh-huh. It's like, That's just false. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. not what happened. Yeah. Please don't come and check. <laughs> governor. Everything so is fine. So. Love yes. Joao. The other thing was that Njinga agreed to be baptized as a Christian. Okay. Zhao Kare de Souza became their godfather. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's just so bizarre, but sure. Yeah. And they took the Christian name Anna de Souza. Okay. Oh, they took his name. They took his name. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's just very strange. Yeah, I, I thought that was quite strange too, okay. but it happened. I know this like is a thing. It yeah. is a thing. Yeah. Well, getting people to be baptized like i've mm. seen this before but it's weird yeah yeah it, it is quite strange it's like when you have like vikings who are now called like you know john of york or whatever yeah <laughs> yeah okay i guess so. <laughs> i guess that's your name now yeah and jinga's name is now also anna de souza yeah let's never mention that again <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah they sometimes sign letters to the portuguese with that but like well I, to the portuguese i guess you will i don't think yeah. they used it in day-to-day life and it was definitely like a purely political baptism so they got a bunch of like catholic icons and so forth and they kept them with them until the portuguese escort left them on their way out and then they're like cool put all those away <laughs> let's do our Ubuntu rituals to like have a yeah. safe journey home now and yeah, yeah. Okay. did that so from their religious perspective it's mm-hmm. just no big deal to pretend to be a Catholic. Yeah, I think it doesn't seem to have been, like, a big worry. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if you don't believe in Catholicism, then getting baptised is a fairly meaningless process. But, I mean, if you look at all of the, like, stuff that's going on in, like, Spain, just a bit yeah. previous mm. with the expulsion of the Jews, um, even if you don't believe in Catholicism, getting baptised is a very big deal. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Specifically because you don't believe in Catholicism. It's idolatrous. Yeah. So obviously it's not conceptualized the same. Yeah. yeah. I think it's more conceptualized as like, I'll do this thing that is obviously important to you, yeah. but means nothing to me. Yeah. Like, I guess if yeah. that's the perspective you're coming from, the baptism is like a pretty sweet deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you'll let me have my country if you dunk me in this pool. Let's go. <laughs> Despite their agreement, however, Njinga didn't yet sign a formal treaty. Part of the thing that held them back was the Portuguese also wanted Ngolan Bande to get baptised. Okay. And unlike Njinga, he refused. Why? Later in life, like in these biographies, Njinga says that they persuaded Ngolan Bande to refuse. I'm not entirely clear on the reasons for this. A possible reason is that because he was the Ngola, Ngolan Bande getting baptised would be seen as a bigger deal. Okay, that's possible. Because the, um, the Ngola has... Oh, or a spiritual position uh, of some kind. Yeah, yeah. The Angola has a spiritual role as well as a like physical, earthly, I rule this country role. Okay. So it would be a bigger deal if they got baptized. As well as that, it's suggested by Haywood, who is a modern recent biographer of Ndinga, the only one in English. Thanks, Haywood, for all the content <laughs> in this podcast. <laughs> Did you like Haywood? Look, it's hard to say. <laughs> the only English biography. I don't Ooh. mind Hayward. <laughs> okay. I don't mind Hayward. Okay. Yeah, Hayward also suggests that Njinga convinced Ngolan Bande not to get baptised because that would weaken the agreement and therefore weaken Ngolan Bande's position oh. as Angola. Oh, I see. Okay. And enable Njinga to 
maybe become Angola. Become a stronger rival. Yeah. Interesting. So that's a possibility. The treaty was never formalized, and the Portuguese, it soon became apparent, had no interest in upholding their side of the treaty. I mean, I'm not. Truly shocked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not, not that surprised. So in 1623, Correa de Souza invited several Mbundu lords to Luanda to swear allegiance to Portugal. And when they arrived, he instead kidnapped them and sent them along with their entourages as slaves to Brazil. Okay, that was a move. That was a move, yeah. Um, Portugal also failed to intervene when Ngolan Bande and Jinga and their people were driven out of the capital, Cabasa, by an Imbangala warband. So they're suddenly having a bad time right now. In 1624, Ngolan Bande died, apparently from ingesting poison. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> Which is what happens to you when you're a monarch with a lot of rivals. Sure, that was an accident. Yeah. Um, so some sources suggest that he took it himself because things were going very badly for Ndongo, others that it was administered by Njinga. We don't know. Either way, after his death, Njinga was elected Ngola. Sweet. You know how when previously it was only men in line to the throne? Yeah, so... How did Njinga end up here? As far as... men left? (laughs) Are there men left? Um, Yeah. I reckon there would have been men left. As far as I'm aware, there was never a female or an assigned female at birth Ngola before Njinga. But it doesn't seem to have been and obviously our sources come mostly from how Njinga would have talked about it and later in life when people were used to having Njinga as their Angola. But there doesn't seem to have been too much of an issue around their sex. Okay. The Portuguese definitely used it against them a lot, being like, no, Njinga can't be Angola. This puppet king should be Angola because Njinga is a woman. But from an Mbundu perspective, it doesn't actually seem to have caused that much trouble. Okay. So they were like, nah. Keep your puppet king. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess they were like, look, you've been a successful rebel leader. You negotiated yeah. what your, would have been a good your treaty. Your resume is good. Yeah. 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 Your resume is good and we're in like big trouble right now. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also hopefully they were sensible enough to know that they didn't have a lot of time to argue about this. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It's also possible that not a lot of people wanted to do this. If it's likely that the previous Angola may have taken poison himself because everything was going that badly. <laughs> it's possible that it just wasn't a position that people wanted. That's or true. even if he had not taken poison himself but had been poisoned, like, yeah. I would have been poisoned. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't take a job where, you know when you're in a job interview and you're like, oh yeah, so can you tell me about like where the last person this role went on to, like what the career possibilities are? They'd be like, he kills himself with poison. <laughs> Yeah, you wouldn't take that job. Yeah. yeah. Njinga, as Ngolan Bande, had also killed off a bunch of rivals mm-hmm. to secure their position, including Ngolan Bande's son, who was seven years old at the time. Oh. I'm sorry, there's a lot of child death in this episode, friends. So for the next few years, Njinga waged a very successful campaign against the Portuguese. Many slaves escaped and many Mbundu people who had gone over to the Portuguese deserted and so Njinga was able to build up a very big supporter base from these people fleeing Luanda and coming back to join Njinga. When the Portuguese demanded that they return these people, Njinga would always just be like, what people? I don't have any of these people. What are you talking about? <laughs> a bold move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, there's one right there. No, there isn't. <laughs> Who is that? Periodically, Njinga did attempt to negotiate with the Portuguese, but they never offered to give up their claim to Ndongo and so the Portuguese we're when, never really interested. Yeah. I mean, also, like, how much stock could they possibly have put on negotiating with the Portuguese at this point, given that they've previously negotiated with the Portuguese, and the Portuguese have been like, nah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And like in Jinga's letters, we do have some from Jinga's letters from oh, this cool. time to the Portuguese. And they're like, they're not the sort of letters you'd write to someone if you really did want to negotiate a peace with oh, them. It's just <laughs> okay. like stalling. I guess. Yeah, it's more just like stalling and being like, look, I'm ready to have a peace as soon as you're ready to accept that I own this country. So, uh. That's a reasonable position, I feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are they writing in Portuguese? They are writing in Portuguese. From what we know, Njinga didn't write Portuguese and they would have dictated these letters to a secretary. Okay. Okay. Who, like, translated or who, like, do you mean they didn't write or that they didn't know Portuguese? I'm not sure if Njinga knew Portuguese. I'm pretty sure Njinga couldn't write Portuguese, so I don't know if they could speak Portuguese. Okay. In 1626, after one of these letters, Portuguese captain Bento Banya Cardoso replied, writing that it was too late to negotiate because he was on his way with an army. And he signed his letter, God protect you if he can. Oh, thanks, I guess. You shouldn't have got them baptised, like, <laughs> if you didn't want God to protect them. That's true. No, he, he wants God to protect them. But he said. Only if, like, he's capable of it. <laughs> God is capable of everything. That's the point. <laughs> That's true. Well, wow. that depends on your theology. <laughs> Let's discuss how this battle went down and you can make a theological statement. <laughs> sure. Oh, okay. Let's do it. So, um, in May 1626, the Portuguese forces arrived at the Kindonga Islands, where Njinga had set up their court. Just so you have a good mental image, these are islands in a river, not islands in the sea. Okay. Okay. So you can picture what's happening here. I'm picturing a river, I'm picturing some islands in it. Good, you're picturing a court and some fortifications on those islands. Yes, yes, yes. Some trees are around. Some trees. What kind of wildlife should I be picturing? (laughs) I don't really know what kind of wildlife they have. That's a shame. In a (laughs) non-gaitman. Anyway, anyway, the Portuguese arrived and laid siege to this court for two months. That's pretty intense. It is pretty intense. And they were, you know, pretty much at an impasse by the end of those two months. So the Portuguese were running out of food and were being decimated by a smallpox epidemic. Oh, good. Jinga's forces were also running out of food. I don't think they had smallpox. So uh, Just like smallpox. The colonizers didn't have manage small, to cross the yeah. river. <laughs> the colonizers <laughs> having smallpox, but the colonizers not having smallpox is like a refreshing change, I guess. That's yeah. true, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the Portuguese aren't having their supplies refreshed by other Portuguese? Uh, apparently not, no. No, apparently not. Interesting. I'm maybe, not quite sure why that is, but apparently not. I don't not. know. Maybe Captain Ben is just here on his own. Maybe Captain Ben's the only man in... Maybe he was not, not meant to come out and do this, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure what this is. I mean, there's definitely, like, throughout this conflict, there's definitely mentions of Mundu forces cutting off Portuguese supply lines. Oh, oh okay. So yeah, it could be sense. the case that their supplies have just been cut off by another Mundu force that wasn't yeah. currently besieged. Yeah. But are they, like, is this particularly remote or where? So the Portuguese are based on the coast. Luanda, which is yeah. the capital that they attack from, is on the coast, and the Kindonga Islands are quite far inland. So, like, yeah, I guess for the Portuguese it's pretty remote. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess if you have to cross all this territory that yeah. they don't necessarily control. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Where people are actively trying to take your food, maybe the food won't get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. That's yeah, my yeah, question like, answered. Thank but you. Sometimes the post doesn't work when nothing is attacking it. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> That's true. Sometimes letters just get lost. Yeah. In July, the Portuguese and Njinga agreed it was time to negotiate a peace. Sure. And they set a date at which Njinga would enter the Portuguese camp and make these negotiations. Seems risky. Yeah. One of the Portuguese demands was that Njinga hand over all these people who had deserted and slaves who had fled Portuguese territory and joined Njinga. Njinga had no interest in doing that, and so two days before they were supposed to appear in the Portuguese camp and negotiate the peace, they snuck out of their court 
in the middle of the night, burning any Portuguese boats they could get their hands on and their own food supplies along the way, and Whoa. disappearing into caves in the countryside. So did everyone leave? Um, Jinga and a whole lot of their army left. Okay. I'm not sure if some Bundu people were left behind to defend or not. Burning their own food just seems like a weird move. Well, and I guess the, if they're going to leave it then, the Portuguese Yeah, like, the Portuguese oh, yeah. were starving. They were about to take over the islands. Yeah, I guess. So they burnt it rather than have the Portuguese get it. When they realized what had happened, the Portuguese made chase with 80 cavalry and a whole lot of foot soldiers, but they were unable to find Njinga, and none of the local people would give up their whereabouts. While Njinga was missing, the Portuguese installed a puppet king named Ngola Hari. Ngola Hari also came from a royal Bundu lineage, and his family had rivaled Njinga's family to the throne for several generations. Is he like a cousin of Njinga then, or just like an unrelated family that also is sometimes the king? They would be related at some point. Okay. So there are a few kind of royal lineages in Dongo that are all ultimately descended from the same people. Yeah. And all can claim the throne or maybe stand for election when the Ngola dies. And Ngola Hari comes from one of these families. Okay. So yeah, he is a relative, but he's not like a brother or a first cousin. Yeah, okay. Ngola Hari was generally unpopular among the Mbundu people and generally seen as being weak and ineffective. So he converted to Catholicism, gave up Mbundu religious traditions, he paid the Portuguese a yearly tribute of 100 slaves, and he handed over control of Ndongo's slave markets more generally to the Portuguese. Yeah, yeah, that would make you unpopular, I guess. Yeah, so yeah. he just wasn't doing a good job. The Portuguese refused to even let him collect his own tax, so he was only allowed to send Portuguese representatives to collect tax. He was generally, like, very much a Portuguese puppet. Njinga, meanwhile, still hiding out in the countryside, was using guerrilla tactics to hassle Ngola Hari and the Portuguese, while they searched for them and failed to find them for several years. Years. Yeah, years. Like, Gosh. this went on for, like, three years of them being like, where is Njinga? And Njinga being like, I snuck <laughs> into your camp cave. and burnt your food. I'm in a cave now. <laughs> good, good, good. What are they eating? Are they taking the food? They do have a lot of support from just, like, the Mbundu people, you know, just, like, living in the countryside, like, farmers and stuff. So they just kind of wander into towns and they're like, hi, it's me, the king. Yeah. And I have a yam and they're like, here, a yam. I don't know if they're a yam. <laughs> sorry. I, I don't know what. The food is in Angola. Njinga has enough to eat. In March 1629, so this is three years since Njinga ran away, mm-hmm. Ngola Hari sent out messages to the provincial governors of Ndongo asking those who were loyal to him to appear in his court. Nobody turned up. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Ngola Hari threw a tantrum. He declared that if this was how it was, then fine, he would let Njinga rule and he stormed out of the room. Well, that was probably the best thing he did as <laughs> Unfortunately, he didn't hold true to that, and he kind of stayed just being an ineffective king. king. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, who did he even say that to? Just like the Portuguese, I guess, who were just kind of there, being like, uh, we chose badly. <laughs> I mean, once you're a puppet king, though, like, it's hard to have a puppet king who was sufficiently puppety enough to do whatever you want, who was also popular with the people. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of a tall order. Yeah, like, having a puppet king that is effective is not going to work. I mean, I, like, it depends on your definition of effective is. I guess from the point of view of the Portuguese, it was reasonably effective and that they have everything they want. That's true. They do have everything they want. I mean, they don't have everything they want because they're still being hassled by Njinga. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So after three years of searching, the Portuguese found Njinga's camp in May 1629. Njinga made a second dramatic escape, crawling across a rocky ledge only wide enough for one person while their army formed a barrier to protect them and oh then god. abseiling down a cliff. Oh my god. And disappearing. Well, okay. <laughs> Several of the Portuguese and Portuguese Mbundu allies tried to follow and fell from the cliff. 
That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) By the time they found a safer route to get around and follow in Jenga, they had once again disappeared. So they could just abseil. I like, surely that's not the first time I've done that. I mean, I assume not, yeah. Did they do this for fun sometimes? Maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what their, like, hobbies were. Maybe they liked rock climbing. Maybe they did. I guess. Rock climbing is essentially the opposite of what's going on here, though, so... I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Yeah. Rock (laughs) unclimbing. So after this narrow escape, Njinga turned to a new strategy and allied themselves with the Imbangala captain, Kassanji, cementing the alliance by marrying him. Oh, okay. This was not the first person Njinga had married. As I mentioned before, they had many concubines. So we should probably talk a bit about what Imbangala are. Because I've mentioned them a few times. In Mangala were nomadic groups that were generally very feared in Ndongo and would raid local towns and local populations, steal food and so forth. Are they like culturally distinct from Ndongo or are they just like traveling bands of Well, they are culturally distinct. We don't know exactly where they first came from. So it's theorized that they could be displaced peoples from another neighboring country that okay. was also experiencing war. But we're really not clear where they originally came from. They lived by a very strict code, which included the rule that women should not give birth in, in Bengala camps. And if they did give birth, should kill their children. Oh, so why? I don't know. There's a lot of unanswered questions about in Bengala. And scholarship is kind of at the point of being like, what's going on? But not at the point of knowing what's going on. Are they just like, this is a bad life being abandoned and we don't want to bring children into this? They would capture children from towns that they raided. So that's how they kind of perpetuated themselves and raised those children as in Bengala. Is this something to avoid like inbreeding in a small group, maybe? I don't know. There are so many questions. Wait, have I misunderstood? So they're not meant to give birth at all or they're not meant to give birth in a certain place? Um, They're not meant to give birth in the camps, in the okay. in Bengala camps, if they do give birth, they're meant to kill their children. Okay, so can they just, like, leave the camp? That's the wording that I've read. Okay. I'm not sure if it was acceptable for a woman to leave a camp, raise a child, and come back when that child was a bit older. Okay. Or something but they like can't, that. like, go for a walk, give birth, and come back with an infant. It's not no, like no, it's not like Within a... the ba- uh, boundaries of that this isn't, like, pure or something. No, no. No, okay. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of unanswered questions, but, like, that's what I know. They also practiced human sacrifice, which was practiced throughout Mbundu, but on a smaller scale than in Mangala practiced it. And they also practiced ritual cannibalism. Of whom? Of their enemies, generally, but also sometimes of people within their own community as part of certain rituals. Like as a respectful uh, observance of their own dead or as punishment of people within their community who Um, were being like... More as part of like human sacrifice. So not necessarily a punishment of you've committed a crime or anything, but you know, we have to sacrifice someone and kill them. It's going to be you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And would those people be people of low status within the community? Not necessarily. There's like, for example, some rituals involve people killing their own children we've really just had an awful lot of this episode we have had an awful lot of this episode i'm sorry as i said i have a lot of unanswered questions and our information about in mangala is pretty like scant scant and scattered that's what i know and that's what njinga is now going to become having allied themselves with kasanje and married into his in mangala camp i guess it's helpful here that the forced sterilization is not an issue 
I was <laughs> yes, thinking that. True. No, I was just. I was thinking that when you said that Njinga had like made an alliance by marrying this man, and I was like, you know, normally the plan there is that you'll have a child, which can unite. Oh yeah, yeah. I see. And so I was like, does Njinga just not tell him that they can't have children? Or, but I guess it's not an issue. Yeah, I mean, in Mangala traditionally don't have children. Have children. Yeah. So uh, it's okay, in a way. So over the following years, Njinga underwent the ritual initiations necessary to become an Imbangala, and then to become an Imbangala leader in their own right, leading their own war party. What are the initiation rituals? We will talk a bit about these rituals later on, because there's some gender stuff for us to discuss. Okay. That's for the queer part of the episode. <laughs> it's just you giving us, like, tantalizing tidbits about queer so yeah. that we stick around. <laughs> Don't go, guys. Don't go. <laughs> Becoming an Imbangala allowed Njinga to have more Imbangala allies to fight alongside them, and it also allowed them to put a positive slant on the fact that they're in exile and they're never staying in one place and constantly moving around. Because Imbangala were generally nomadic and generally very feared. Okay. So now they get to be, like, a feared warlord instead of on the run. Yeah. Yeah. The okay. same thing, but, like, new PR. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Njinga wasn't yet strong enough to reconquer the parts of Ndongo that had been taken from them by the Portuguese. So instead, with their Mbangala band, they marched on the neighbouring country of Matamba. They captured the capital of Matamba, banished the Matamban queen Mongo, and set themselves up in that capital as their base from which to fight the Portuguese. So Matamba had a queen as well? Yeah, Matamba did have a queen. I don't know oh. anything about her. Her name's Mongo. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's the one Ooh. fact. <laughs> I guess maybe that's why it went fairly easily that Njinga became Ngola. They were like, oh yeah, next door there's Mongo. That seems normal. Yeah, that's true. Like, oh yeah, they've got a queen over there. They're doing okay. Yeah. 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 Not anymore, they're not. No, no, not anymore. So was this fairly normal that it was just like neighboring kingdoms that are like conquering each other? And yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's As you'd kind of expect. Yeah, it's just yeah. how neighboring kingdoms are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It, it's fine. I mean, it's not <laughs> fine for the people of Matamba, but, like, you know. This isn't, like, out of the ordinary in yes. terms of how Ndongo behaves to Matamba. Yeah. Okay. So, from their base in Matamba, Njinga continued their campaign against the Portuguese. They disrupted trade routes, and they forced the closure of many slave markets, because there were no trade routes to get the slaves to the markets. By 1633, the Portuguese slave trade had basically ground to a halt. Oh, well Good. done, Njinga. That's results. Yeah, yeah, that is results. Yeah. They're doing good. I'm sure the like five percent of the population or whatever that's being, you know, forcibly removed from the country every year is pleased. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sure they are. Then in 1641, Njinga heard some surprising news. The Dutch West India Company had arrived in Angola. They'd captured Luanda from the Portuguese. Oh, hello. Okay. Yeah. The Dutch have come. The Dutch nope, have come. <laughs> So Njinga was very happy when they heard this news and they had celebrations in Matamba. because they like seems premature. <laughs> I'm How like, long am I? They just like to hear about the Portuguese getting conquered. Oh, fair, but like... Things between Njinga and the Dutch go pretty well. Okay. All things considered. I mean, I guess their worst possible scenario here is that they end up in essentially the same situation against the Dutch, but also they get to see someone they hate get crushed. I guess, but I thought. I guess my thought was that the Dutch could just be better at what they're trying to do than the Portuguese. Yeah, true. Mm-hmm. And Jinga could have just been killed. Yeah, which seems worse. Yeah, I guess that's situation. true. Yeah, um, but, never, like, but no, no, no. So Jinga sent ambassadors to meet the Dutch to congratulate them on uh, conquering the Portuguese, and the Dutch were like, "Thanks." 
thanks. The Dutch were like, thanks. And they formed an alliance with Ndongo, the Dutch, and the country of Congo, which is to the north of Ndongo. And they began working together against the Portuguese. And the Portuguese are like, yikes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> So by the time a new Portuguese governor, Francisco de Sotomayor, arrived in 1645, he found that there were just 80 Portuguese-born Portuguese soldiers remaining in Angola, supported by around 8,000 allied Mbundu soldiers. And Jinga's in Bengala war party, so that includes like the camp followers that live with the army as well as the army, but they numbered about 80,000. I like how those are just, like, all orders of magnitude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Neat. It's very easy to keep track of what's happening here. So Sotomayor, who'd just arrived, wrote home saying that Njinga was, quote, the most powerful adversary that has ever existed in Africa, and he ordered for Njinga to be immediately captured and killed. Well, well. That was a bold move for someone with 80 soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, Sotomayor would have brought some more soldiers with him when he arrived. I assume he didn't That's arrive. Just a guy on the boat. <laughs> Not just like in his little car. Growing from Portugal by himself. <laughs> I know what we should do. We should just kill them. And they're like, oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing that meme that's like, if I were governor of Ndongo, I would <laughs> simply kill Njinga. RIP to you guys, but I'm different. <laughs> Sotomayor formed an alliance with various Mbundu provincial lords, with Ngolahari's army, with Imbangala allies, and launched an attack on Njinga's forces. In March 1646, after a long battle, he was able to sack Njinga's war camp. Njinga fled, but many people were taken prisoner, including Njinga's sisters Kambu and Fringi. Oh, they're still around. Yeah, oh, I no. told you they'd be around. Oh, did you? Okay. I mean, and that was why I told you their names. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because nice. I was like, they'll come back. Fungi, unfortunately, was later killed oh. for spying. So while she was a captive of the Portuguese, she was managing to sneak letters oh, out to Njinga okay. about what the Portuguese so were doing. Good. And eventually they realised, and they killed her. So then in August 1648, an armada of 15 Portuguese ships arrived in Luanda and demanded that the Dutch surrender. The Dutch commander sent word to Njinga and Dutch Major Tin Peterson calling for aid. But they were in the middle of an assault on a Portuguese fort, and they didn't arrive until two weeks later. When they did arrive outside Luanda, Peterson entered Luanda ahead of Njinga to scout out the situation, and he found the last of the Dutch getting on ships to flee, having surrendered the city. So Peterson got on a ship, and he left. Oh, okay. And Njinga waited outside Luanda, thinking, when's he going to give the signal for me to attack? Oh. Until they saw the Portuguese flag raised over the city and realised what had happened. And they just kind of like left, I guess? Yeah, or? they left and went back to Matamba. And from there, they continued their campaign against the Portuguese for many more years. In the 1650s, Njinga's efforts against the Portuguese finally paid off, and the Portuguese began to consider a peace treaty. In 1656, they agreed to the terms of a treaty. Njinga would be baptised a second time. Again, they were like, you're not Catholic enough, try again. <laughs> yeah, they were like, you said you're Catholic, but you're not Catholic, let's do this again. So yeah, Njinga would welcome Christianity and would provide the Portuguese with military assistance when they needed it and grant them access to slave markets. In return, the Portuguese would grant many of the lands of Ndongo back to Njinga, yeah, which they already owned, really. They would assist Njinga in fighting Ngolahari, who's still around. Why do they need to fight him? Isn't he like, their puppet right, Stop it now. <laughs> Go home, Ngolahari. Seriously, though, what, he doesn't have forces, does he? He has, like, some forces. Yeah, his popularity, like, grows and wanes, so we saw him at his lowest point before, but I don't okay. think he's a serious All threat. Right, well, I don't 
respect him. Yeah. And as well as that, Kambu would be freed from Portuguese captivity. Oh, okay. that's... That was one of the most important parts of this treaty to Njinga. Before embracing Christianity for a second time, having not really embraced it the first time, Njinga sought approval from several Ubuntu priests, specifically from priests called Shingalas, who are possessed by the spirits of ancestors and will speak for the ancestors. So through a Shingala, Njinga received approval from their brother Ngolan Banding, who said that while he'd prefer they continue to practice Ubuntu religious traditions, if Christianity was the best way to ensure peace and stability in the region, then he'd accept that Njinga was making the best choice. Okay. That's reasonable. Yeah. I mean, I think this is Njinga's sort of public justification as well of saying, look, this is why I'm doing this and why I'm giving up my own religious traditions. So on the 9th of April, 1656, Kambu left Luanda with a large escort, possibly including a pyrotechnician. Njinga had specifically requested that a soldier who knew how to do fireworks come with Kambu so they could appropriately celebrate her return. Oh, okay. Which I liked. <laughs> I was so unsure whether that pyrotechnician was going to be doing, like, battle things or fireworks. No, just fireworks. And Jingo was like, please send Kambu back. And when you do, I would like some fireworks. And I would like someone who can set off those fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> That's in the peace treaty. Send me Kambu and the fireworks technician. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not clear if they did send the fireworks technician, but I know that Njinga did ask for the fireworks technician. <laughs> I I had never thought about when fireworks started to exist. <laughs> well, I think if you have gunpowder, you can have fireworks. So on the 12th of October, 1656, Kambu arrived in Matamba. Njinga threw themselves on the ground at Kambu's feet. They embraced. They were very happy. That's Maybe there good. were fireworks. <laughs> the same day, the peace treaty was formally signed and several days of celebration followed. I'm just picturing them like, Hugging their sister, and then like the fire work technician standing there. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, their sister, and they're like, well. And it's just like, turn down the water. <laughs> so that's the end of the war with the Portuguese. Like, oh. forever? Um, what in Jinga's life, <laughs> okay. let's say. I don't really know what happened in Ndongo after Njinga's death, oh. but the Portuguese did continue to rule Angola until 1975. Uh. In the later years of their life, Njinga focused mostly on converting Matamba to Christianity. Okay. So are they um, for real Christian now? They are for real Christian now. There's a couple of possible reasons for this. One is just that it strengthens their alliance with the Portuguese. The Portuguese are much less likely to break the treaty if Njinga has actually committed to Christianity. Yeah, I guess that's not what I mean by for real Christian, though. I mean, like, are they, like, actually a Christian, though? They're not just, like, committing harder to the tra- pe- to pretending to be a Christian for the Portuguese. I... Can't really say. I don't know what Njinga themselves actually believes at this point. Yeah, I don't know. In 1657, they wrote a letter directly to the Pope asking him to formally recognise them as a Christian monarch because that would give them the potential to negotiate with other European countries as an equal and more clearly assert their independence from the Portuguese. Um, The Pope said... Well, first the Portuguese intercepted the letter because they kind of saw how this would go. And they had passed a royal decree which said that, quote, no Ethiopian lord, so they use Ethiopian to mean all of Africa, no Ethiopian lord should travel or send an embassy to Europe, which effectively prevented any African rulers from negotiating on their own terms outside of Africa. And Jinga did eventually get a letter to the Pope. Oh, good. And in March 1661, Pope Alexander VII wrote back and formally recognised Njinga as a Christian monarch. Okay. Which was good. Njinga was very happy. The letter was read aloud at a public celebration. 
was a firework technician. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. So Njinga made a big public show of being a Christian monarch. They physically helped build churches themselves. They oh, yeah, taught young so... women classes about the Virgin Mary. They... Oh, yeah. Good, like, politician <laughs> propaganda. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Like, hitting something with a hammer once on camera or whatever. Yeah, I, I think it was a bit like that from what yeah. I gathered. <laughs> They went to mass a lot. They also gave up their concubines and married one husband in a Catholic ceremony. Okay. And they urged their followers to do the same. In spite of their efforts, change in Matampa was slow and people weren't very keen to become Christians. That's not, like, surprising, really. Or that mm. giving up your multiple spouses thing. Yeah. Yeah. Probably isn't Is really Matampa in, like, within modern-day Angola? I think parts of it maybe. I'm not clear on how the exact borders of countries then relate to the borders of countries okay. now. Okay. So I'm afraid I'm not sure. All right, no, that's fine. So Njinga gradually turned to increasingly coercive methods to convert their population to Christianity. Njinga. Mm-hmm. So they ordered Mbundu shrines to be burnt and replaced with churches. In the capital, Mbundu priests were arrested and often sold into slavery. And the money from their sale was used by European missionaries in Matamba to buy religious ornaments for churches. That sounds like they've bought into it pretty hard. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you're still secretly allied with the religion you were raised with, are you really going to sell your priest of that religion? When I got to this point of Njinga's life, it was very hard for me to kind of get my head around what they were doing. What they were doing and why. In October 1663, Njinga fell very ill. They were quite old at this point, in the 80s. Their sickbed was attended by traditional Mbundu doctors and priests, as well as European missionary Father Kabatsi. Father Kabatsi is one of the biographers of Njinga, who I've mentioned. Njinga died on December 17, 1663, and the next day, according to their wishes, Kambu was crowned Angola. Wait, so do they have to do an election, though, or...? I don't know if they followed the normal election practices. The people close to Njinga deliberately crowned Kambu before announcing Njinga's death. So they could say, Njinga's dead and here's the queen, without any chance for anyone to step in and do anything else. So I suspect they didn't follow the normal election practices. In the years leading up to Njinga's death, they've been gradually trying to phase out traditional Ubuntu funeral practices, which are called tambos and include human sacrifice. And according to Father Cavazzi, Njinga's final wishes were to have a Catholic funeral and to be buried in a capuchin habit. So Father Cavazzi is a capuchin priest. Unsurprisingly, this caused conflict with Njinga's court. And throughout the funeral process, they were dressed in Ubuntu clothes, then undressed, then dressed in oh. this capuchin habit, then undressed, then dressed in Ubuntu clothes because they couldn't like, agree on it was decided what they or could. People were just like forcibly redressing them. I think the latter. So oh they gosh. dressed him in Ubuntu clothes and Father Kavatsi was apparently saying they'd be like, no, this isn't what they wanted. No, this isn't what they wanted. And eventually convinced people to dress them in the capuchin robe. Yeah. By the time they were buried, they were in Ubuntu clothes again. I'm not quite sure how that second transition occurred. But obviously throughout the day yeah. and the funeral process, they changed several times. And the funeral itself was a combination of Catholic traditions and Ubuntu traditions. Despite Njinga's campaign against it, Njinga's soldiers petitioned Kambu to let them hold an Mbundu tambo. And Kambu allowed it, provided that no human sacrifice and no modest dances took place. No human sacrifice seems like a reasonable rule to lay down. So in the days following Njinga's death, more than 20,000 people gathered in a kind of temporary village in the capital of Matamba. 
And for six days, they held dances and feasts and performed an elaborate play of Njinga's life, as was traditional. I like the idea of performing a play of someone's life. (laughs) Is there, like, somebody's job to, or, like, a group's job to put together this play at short notice? Or do people just kind of improv their way through it? I want to know how this works. I don't know the details of how that would have actually happened, yeah. Is there a confusing bit where some people have been told that they did this uh, massive thing on behalf of their brother when they were young, and some people had... <laughs> yeah. Oh, chaos for a <laughs> Yeah. Maybe, maybe so. Yeah, I don't know what the uh, logistics of putting on this play are. And following that, Cavazzi led the people in eight days of Catholic ceremonies and masses for Njinga. Yeah. That is a lot of stuff. That's I like- guess once they had six days of Ubuntu rituals, the priest <laughs> yeah. was like, well, I have to beat that. Cavazzi- eight days. <laughs> so that- Isn't that just mass like 15 times? Like- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's not like variations for each day or anything, is there? They're just like, I'm doing maths and I will keep doing maths until I've decided to cease doing maths. (laughs) I think that's pretty much it. Maybe they said a few rosaries to like break it up. Yeah, but still, like, it's still like being in church and praying, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't think Kavazi put on a play of Njinga's life. (laughs) That'd be pretty good. (laughs) It's like a one man, like, (laughs) dance. So that's Njinga's life. Thank you for enjoying all that non-queer content. Now we're going to talk about the queer content. Okay. Okay, cool. Unfortunately, there's information about some queer things in Njinga's life, but there's really not much scholarly analysis. Let's do our best, I guess. Good luck, friends. Yeah, as I mentioned, Haywood was my main source for this, mm-hmm. who wrote a biography of Njinga in 2017. And I think both of you probably know this because both of you probably received a message from me at one point being like, is this even queer? Have yeah, I messed yeah. up? <laughs> I remember this. I was about halfway through the biography when I got to the one paragraph of like, by the way, here's some queer stuff. And then that just like rushed past me and I completely like, whoa, whoa, what just happened? And then that was it. Okay. That's unfortunate. I found that even researching, uh, like, if you remember in the Nero episode, where people mm. were like, that's weird, I guess. Anyway... Yeah, and I think it is the case, as you'll probably understand when I talk about it a bit more, it is the case with Njinga that people just don't know what to do with the queer stuff, because it's not just like, Njinga had a wife, it's, you know, we'll talk about it. What is it then? I will talk about it. Okay, so, I talked before about how Njinga became an Imbangala leader. As an Imbangala leader, Njinga modelled themselves on a semi-mythical previous Imbangala leader, known as Tembo Ndumbo, who was most famous for codifying those Imbangala laws that I talked about. Do all Imbangala <laughs> leaders, like, model themselves after this pass? Njinga more than most, because Tembo Ndumbo was assigned female at birth. Oh. Which is not all that normal for an Imbangala leader. I'll mention here before I talk about Tembo a bit more that all my information comes from our good friend Father Kabati. Okay. Oh, cool. Sick. So just keep that in mind. So, Tembo was assigned female at birth, but before they became an Imbangala leader, they underwent several rituals, so those, for example, cannibalism rituals that I've talked about and stuff, designed to, to quote Father Kavatsi, turn them into a man, soldier, and warrior. One of these rituals involved killing their own son. In another, after achieving an altered state through, like, ritual dance and ritual drumming, they announced to their followers that they were no longer a woman, that they were now a warrior, and then they performed some war dances traditionally performed by men. Okay. Okay. So that's Tembo. In the early 1630s, when Njinga was in the process of becoming an Imbangala leader, they underwent some of the same rituals. Okay. As Njinga didn't have a son, they killed the child of one of their concubines. What gender are their concubines? Some are male, some are female. Okay. Oh, okay. Some we'll talk about later. So this concubine whose child they just killed. So this was a female concubine. Okay. Who's the father? I don't know. All right. That's a good question that just didn't occur to me. Okay. 
I just but like, like fidelity is not expected of I don't know. Yeah, that actually just didn't occur to me. I don't know. Yeah. I guess there's not really a concern about knowing the child's lineage from Najinga's perspective given that it's obviously Yeah, not. obviously Najinga isn't the biological parent, so Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it doesn't matter so much. Yeah. So as I've mentioned, my only source on this is Father Cavazzi, and I can't read Father Cavazzi's biography because it's not in English. So my only source on this is this one paragraph that Hayward just like threw at oh. me, didn't analyze, and then just went away again. And I was like, come back. Why would you think that you shouldn't talk more about that, Hayward? I don't know, Hayward. So from what I can gather, these rituals were necessary for anyone to become an Imbangala leader. Okay. But Imbangala leaders were traditionally men. So it's not entirely clear to me if they're specifically linked to sort of gender and transforming gender or if because Tembo and Jingo were assigned female at birth, they're seen as gender transforming rituals in that case. But for somebody who is assigned male at birth, these are just rituals you do to become an Imbangala leader and it's not about gender. So you kind of suggested, or did I misunderstand, that Tembo was seen as like the first the first in Bengal yeah. leader. Tembo is not the very first in Bengal leader, but they're a very early one and they're known for codifying in Bengal laws. So they are a kind of patriarch, for want of a better word, of in Bengala. So while you say then that it's not common for someone assigned female at birth to become an Imbangala leader, I presume it would be fairly accepted. Yeah, there is a model of a very famous Imbangala yeah. leader. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no one can be like, you can't do that. That's not in the rules. Yeah, but the only two that I'm aware of are Tembo and Jinko. But like, how many are you aware of generally? There were quite a lot who were like mentioned by name okay. throughout reading the biography, so like, oh, quite a oh, few. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but then um, again, maybe Father Cavazzi didn't know had been assigned what gender at birth, right? That might be true as well, yeah. Yeah, like, we do have to remember that we're seeing most of this through the flawed lens of Father Cavazzi. And it's presumably things that Njinga told Father Cavazzi. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And mm. I guess, yeah, we don't know what words Njinga would have used for these people's gender. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So Father Cavazzi says, for example, that Tembo announced that they were no longer a woman and that they were now a man and a warrior. But we don't know if that comes from Njinga directly or mm. if that's how Father Cavazzi was understanding what's happening or... Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like we do need a lot of context about gender in this society that I assume we just don't have. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I kind of don't know what you want from us. <laughs> but it's certainly not that uncommon um, in other societies, which is obviously of limited use here, but still... Mm-hmm. We'll go for, with what we have. Um, a monarch assigned female at birth to sort of take on male gender roles in terms of dress or something like that to an mm. extent to make herself generally acceptable as the ruler. Like even yeah. the yeah. of England did that to some extent. Yeah, no, that, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. So, I expect someone will do some interesting work yeah. about Njinga and Queen Elizabeth I at some point because they are contemporaries. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that when yeah. it was the 1600s in the first place. I was like, what else happened yeah. in the 1600s? Queen Elizabeth well, I. Yeah. 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 The, the fire of London. Yeah. Fire of London. Yeah. That certainly seems like it could be trans and is of interest to us because it's about how gender's working in this particular mm, yeah. people group. But I don't think it's like inherently yeah. queer necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it could also be the case that this is just a way of Njinga cementing themselves yeah. as a ruler. We do also see at other points in Njinga's life them rejecting aspects of female identity specifically female titles Mm -hmm. or 
sometimes female dress. It's hard to know exactly what clothing Njinga did wear because some sources say no, Njinga always dressed in male clothing and other sources talk about Njinga dressing in female clothing. So I don't know what clothing Njinga did wear. But for example, writing about earlier in their life before Njinga became an Imbangala, Governor Bento Banya Cardoso mm-hmm. refers to them as, quote, woman and queen or king as she called herself because she did not like to admit that she was a woman. Mm. I mean, I guess that's the same thing, though, that, like, without yeah. knowing more about mm. how that society understood gender in the first place in order to think about how they might have understood their gender yeah. differently yeah. than the norms or within different norms than we have or whatever, it's hard to say. And then even then it comes down to the difference between that gender as, like, a personal role and a yeah. political role. Yeah, and a yeah. performed political role. And I think it's also the case that if, for example, this quote comes from Cardoso, who's Portuguese, or we have most of my information comes from Kabatsi, that European writers at this time are really struggling with the mm-hmm. idea of someone assigned female at birth or a woman who is a military leader who is leading a country and doing yeah. these things that they consider quite masculine. And to them it seems like, regardless of what Njinga's doing or how Njinga's performing their gender, it seems like Njinga has renounced womanhood yeah. Yeah. just by taking on that role from a European perspective. And I guess Njinga is also doing a lot of things like – Physically, that you know, we don't picture Queen Elizabeth doing, for example, like we've got Njinga abseiling down rock faces, mm, right? Mm. Njinga does lead the army, the, like, like physically, physically leads person. their army. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so that's gender. Yeah, like I think it's important that we're not like, well, that's obviously nothing to do with like transness because yeah. we could have a political explanation. Like, I think we try pretty hard to avoid that kind of like yeah. explanation for queerness in general that like just because there are other plausible explanations it doesn't mean that the queer one is therefore the least likely yeah, yeah. Like, or anything like that but yeah like I don't know <laughs> it's possible that Njinga was a cis woman who was just like this is how I can hold on to power yeah I, yeah it's the thing as well where like you said at the start you know like to let you know if we think that using they them pronouns works in mm. terms of how they might have thought about their own identity or if it's mm-hmm. just, like, a good placeholder because we don't know what's going on. Yeah, and I was uh, definitely using it as a placeholder because yeah, I just didn't know. Uh, the same. But I think that it's a sort of thing where engaging with that to a certain extent kind of encourages us implicitly to be like, was this a cis woman or a trans man or a non-binary person, which is obviously just such a mm. like, modern Western yeah. conception of that. Like, who knows if any of those concepts have any viability in this society? Not yeah. me, not these random Portuguese people, <laughs> you know? Yeah, not not most scholars writing about this either. Like, obviously they have some concept of, like, manhood because we've been talking about it yeah. throughout all of this, but, like, we can't just assume that they have a gender binary in the same way that we do or that they have a gender binary and, like, that's it. Anything, yeah, surely. yeah. Or no, that they I... have the same, I guess, connection between your sex organs or whatever and your gender. Mm. And also the, the same associations that we have between, like, leading an army or leading a country. I mean, obviously being they, a man. they don't to some yeah. extent. So, yeah. yeah, so uh, um, it is hard to say. To what extent, and I don't know if you know this. Is I the, don't. <laughs> like, to what extent has the culture of Ndongo continued into like modern day angola i mean it definitely has to some degree but i don't know details okay i was more just sort of wondering like could we then look into how gender is perceived i think in that culture now i think that would be a good way to approach this like obviously there are some sources that we can look at 
from the time, but those are pretty much all written by Europeans. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think possibly to get an Ubuntu perspective on it, that would be the best method that we have would be to approach modern Ubuntu people at culture and research that, yeah. So I'm not done. I've got a second queer thing to talk about, and it is more about gender in Ubuntu culture and in Mangala culture. Okay. So we've mentioned Njinga's concubines a few times, and I've mentioned that some of them are female. Yeah. So I don't actually have that much to say about the female concubines. There were female concubines. Great. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. But various sources also mention things along the lines of, like, Njinga had male concubines who they forced to wear female clothing and referred to as women or something like that. So Njinga forced them to? (laughs) That is usually how it's presented. And it's often linked in both contemporary and modern sources to Njinga's own gender expression. Yeah. So to the idea that in order to affirm themselves as playing a masculine role, yeah, they have to like they get have men to, to play feminine roles. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, kind of that. So Dutch author Ulfa Dapper, who never travelled to Africa, okay. but was a contemporary of Njinga and did write about Njinga based on accounts of Dutch people who had travelled to Africa. Sure, yeah, let's have another degree of separation. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, I'm just giving you an idea of what yeah, people yeah. were saying at the time. It's not your fault. <laughs> Alfred Dapper wrote, Njinga maintains 50 to 60 concubines whom she dresses like women, even though they are young men, and dresses herself as a man. She calls these men women and herself a man. So you can see how Dapper's tied these two things together. Mm. I mean... How does he know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't know, but that's kind of the, the way that it's written about it at the time. So primary sources on Jinga often present this information with no more context. And unfortunately, Haywood, our good friend, also does the same thing. Haywood's just like, Jinga had male concubines that they dressed as women. Mm, and then just leaves. Oh, well. But there is actually cultural context for what's going on here. Oh, okay. Exciting. Where did you find this? <laughs> so I just can't remember how I got onto them because I know that Haywood doesn't really talk about it. Okay. But, um... I know that Cavazzi does talk about it, and another Portuguese man named Antonio de Oliveira de Cardonega talks about it. So several primary sources talk about Mbundu priests assigned male at birth who present in feminine ways. Interesting. Okay. And they're variously referred to as Kimbandas, Shibados, Jinbandas. So we have a lot of European approximations of this word. I'm not actually sure what the Kimbundu word, so what the local word for these people is. But I think Kimbanda is the closest to the actual word. Why okay. do you think that? That is just the general impression I have from my reading, that Kimbanda seems to be the one that people writing about this have settled on. Okay. Okay. I'm suspicious, but go on. Yeah, like, I'm not sure. And I will be upfront about the fact that I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> so to quote Antonio de Oliveira de Cardonega, who was a Portuguese contemporary of Njinga, who lived in Angola for most of his life. Among the people of Angola, there is much sodomy among men who pursue these dirty practices dressed like women. Some among them are wizards who control everything. (laughs) That was a choice of word. I mean, I guess this is in translation. Yeah, this is in translation from Portuguese of a Portuguese man trying to understand Mbundu culture. So, like, wizards who control everything. Why would you? Why would you Wait, choose? Is there not more after everything? It's just to control everything. I mean, there's more stuff said, but like that's the end of that clause. I guess qualifying everything is <laughs> it's everything. It's everything. So some among them are wizards who control everything and are esteemed by most of the people. These cross-dressing men who have sex with other men happen to live together in bands, meeting most often to give burial services. Alrighty. So, Clearly so, priests, right? They're priests. Yeah. They're, like, if he's like, these groups of men meet together to give burial services. They're wizards. They control everything. They're wizards and they have gay sex. Yeah. They, 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 
Neither priests. <laughs> if they the priest just another word for like a magic practitioner, I would not have blinked yeah. at that. Just <laughs> the word like, wizard is literally anything. If they quotations. said like shaman or priest or like literally anything, I would have been like, okay. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so again, we have this connection between uh, gender non-conforming people and sort of you know religious practices in a community. Yeah, it's our good old trans feminine people have spiritual powers thing yeah. that we see everywhere in the world. It's just the truth. <laughs> It's just back again. This is the truth, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so Malcolm Guthrie, who's a modern scholar of Bantu languages, so that's the language group that Kimbundu belongs to. Oh, yeah, yeah. Malcolm Guthrie suggests that the word Kimbanda, or whatever that word may be, comes from a Bantu root Mbanda, which refers to religious power. So from an Mbundu perspective, the point is the religious power, not the gender presentation so much. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Do um, we really, like, trust these sources to know when uh, someone assigned male at birth is dressing as a woman? Like, do you think they have enough of a handle on, like, what gender presentation looks like? Huh. I don't want to just, like, take that for granted. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, like, to what extent are these people dressing as a woman and to what extent is a Portuguese man looking and going, well, they're wearing a skirt and they've got long hair? Karnega did live for most of his life okay. in Angola. Yeah, okay. So, like, I, I don't think it's impossible. I just think it's, like, worth raising the question, given we've pretty much raised it in the opposite direction. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a fair point that I hadn't thought of. Another thing that is mentioned is that the leader of a Kimbanda group was referred to as grandmother. So oh, okay. I think that's a clearer yeah. Yeah, indication yeah, right, than yeah, sure. clothing, that they are being seen as feminine to some degree. There's, like, only, like, three constants in life. Death, taxes, and trans-feminine priestesses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, returning to Njinga, Kavatsi writes about Kimbandas, There is not an Imbangala who does not try to keep some of them to watch over him. Without the counsel and approval of such, he will not dare to exercise any act of jurisdiction nor take any resolution. So this might be a more accurate explanation of what's going on when we're told that Njinga has a harem of cross-dressing men who they keep as concubines. Njinga, in fact, actually has, like, a group of priests. Njinga has, fact, yeah, like, a council of... A council yeah. of advisor priests, but because they're assigned male at birth and dressed in female clothing, Europeans are immediately like, oh, this is a sex thing. Didn't they have a baby by one of these people, they had a baby by a male concubine. I'm not sure if that male concubine was a commander or just some dude. Some I don't know. No one about that <laughs> just male like concubine. Tim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think they also did just have male concubines who were just okay. guys. Okay. So there's a lot of people going on here. <laughs> a lot of concubines. Yeah. There's the, the woman who had a baby. There's the man who fathered a baby. There's some commanders who may not be concubines at all. What I'm getting out of this, I guess, is that in, in Bengala groups, hmm. like transcending gender boundaries, is fairly standard, fairly accepted, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess there are... There are roles you can do that in. Yeah, there are ways to do it and kind of socially accepted or formally laid out paths to either... Yeah, yeah. Like, for people assigned male at birth or people assigned female at birth. Mm. I guess, like, for people assigned female at birth, like, what if you don't want to be the leader of the drive? <laughs> what if you <laughs> like, just want to be bands, If guy. you're just, like... Yeah. You know, want to, like, hurt a cow or something. I don't know what these people do. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, no, like, that's, that's a very specific thing, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's that's just... sort of, I guess, what I was wondering. Is this something that's accepted in general amongst Imbangala or mm. only in those yeah. particular positions? I mean, I think this is the same thing that we talked about. When we talked about Weewa, who was a Zuni person living in the 19th century, and they were a Lamina, which is a trans-feminine gender role, so assigned male at birth, but performing some feminine roles and some specifically Lamina roles, 
And there was that very specific path that they could take as a trans feminine person. But we were wondering if there were other paths open to them to be recognized as a woman, for example, rather than a lamina or other ways to express their gender. I guess it's the same question. Like, did they just have these specific ways to transgress Mm, gender? Or is it just showing that overall, as a culture, they were quite fluid about gender in general? Yeah. Yeah, like, I guess the distinction between like, is this is becoming this kind of priest something trans feminine people can do or is it like the only path to yeah if you are a trans feminine person you're kind of like well to live my life expressing myself as best i can i'm gonna have to become a priest isn't yeah. that just so like wildly the opposite of our situation <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yeah well like... i guess i guess there is that thing like historically where people have been like i guess i'm gay time to go into the church and be in a single sex setting yeah okay to finish up i just want to talk a little bit about njinga's legacy and how njinga has been understood by different groups of people okay so i've mentioned a few times father kavati and father gaita who is the other biographer of njinga who knew njinga and for many years these two biographies written by father kavati and father gaita were kind of the only information that Europeans had about Njinga. So to give you an idea of their content, and you've already heard a bit about them throughout this episode, Gator's biography was titled The Marvelous Conversion to the Holy Faith of Christ of Queen Njinga and her Kingdom of Matamba in Central Africa. Okay. (laughs) And these books were vetoed by the Vatican before they went to publication. And publications in the following centuries in Europe kind of used these books and picked out specific aspects that were of interest to them, notably Njinga's sexuality, so there are books about that? There are, like, 17th century biographies being like, ooh, Njinga had so many husbands, and, like, ooh, maybe Njinga slept with women. Like, you know, okay. those kinds of books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they also focused on cannibalism okay. and on Njinga's conversion to Christianity. So that was kind of what the image was for a long time in European culture of Njinga. And the first modern biography was published by Hayward, as I've mentioned, in 2017. So conversely, in Mbundu tradition, Njinga was remembered through oral histories as a very powerful ruler and as someone who found a way to maintain Ubuntu independence and fought off colonization. And as the Angolan nationalist movement kind of gained momentum and took off in the 60s and 70s before Angola achieved independence in 1975, Njinga was used as a hero of that movement and is now often referred to as the mother of Angola. There's statues of them around. Oh, cool. They're taught about in Angolan schools and so on. So they're quite well known in Angola. Beyond Africa, Ndinga was also remembered by all those slaves we've talked about who mm-hmm. were sent to Brazil, and they continued to pass on oral histories of Ndinga as well, and we can see that reflected in Afro-Brazilian culture. So, for example, in Afro-Brazilian festivities where they elect sort of a king and a queen of the parade, the queen is often called Queen Ndinga. Oh. And in recent years, Ndinga has gotten more well-known in Afro-Brazilian and more generally in African-American communities once again, as a kind of a hero who fought against colonization and fought against that slave trade and so forth. And lastly, most recently, Njinga has become very important to queer African people and queer people of African descent. As we know, because we have never talked about an African person who spent their whole life in Africa on this podcast before, there's not a lot of information about queerness in Africa. And there's often this myth perpetuated by queerphobic African authorities and so on, that queerness was a Western import into Africa and there just isn't queerness in Africa. Mm. And having someone like Njinga, who is this African hero who was queer, is very, very important Mm. to queer African people or queer people of African descent. And hopefully we'll be able to talk about more queer African people in the future. 
With that, we have been Queer as Fact. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. I'm Irene. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean or Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you found this one. If you do find us on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it if you rate us and leave us a review there because it helps more people to find our content and learn about queer history. And also, if you leave us a nice review, we'll read your review out on this podcast as Eli is about to do now. This review is from uh, from the United States. <laughs> okay. That was my best. Was that their name? Yeah. Okay. I thought that was just that you were like trying to figure out how to say something and you were just nah, like do do in the meantime. That's essentially what it is. Okay. And it's titled Amazing and it's five stars. Thank you. Do 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 I'm so sorry. Uh, it reads great podcast with great accessible storytelling. Amazing stories presented and told in a way that is funny but still informative. Love it. Frog emoji. Rainbow flag emoji. Thank oh, you for the good. frog emoji. We love the frog emoji. Yes. Very good. good. Thank you very much for that review. If you enjoy our podcast, you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. If you really enjoy our podcast, you can give us some money on Patreon, where we are also Queer as Fact. And one of the rewards you can get in return is that we will thank you personally on this podcast. So today I would like to thank Laura, Sydney, Wendy, Livy, and Jay for sponsoring Queer as Fact. Thank you very much. You helped pay for my library membership where I got my books about Njinga. You paid for this episode. <laughs> you did. You, did. You, you paid for this episode. I renewed my library membership last week. It's so expensive. Why did we graduate? <laughs> <laughs> Don't leave you any kids. Don't do it. Thank you very much. For your support, it means a lot to us. Lastly, if you love Queer as Fact a lot, you can go to our Redbubble store, also Queer as Fact, and you can buy merch with our logo on it. And keep an eye on that because we will be releasing some new merch very soon, or if we're fast, it will be out by the time you hear this episode. So go check out our Redbubble store. We'll be back on the 1st of January. Ah, 2020! Yeah, yikes. Um, yikes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.